Information is available at dec.org.uk. John Finnemore presents a fourth series of his award-winning sketch show in a moment. And in half an hour, we make our nightly trip to Ambridge where Ian wants a holiday. Now, though, let's take a look ahead to next week. Dramatised for BBC Radio 4. Unpublished real-life accounts. Anyone who comes here must be prepared to put their hand to anything, such as stitching up wounds and extracting teeth. I have extracted a hundred since I came here. Nurses across the British Empire in the 1920s. I'm trying very hard to make the best of it, in spite of the drop-in salary after the Gold Coast. What happened there? I'd rather not say. Heard for the first time, Writing the Century, Passages from Empire. Next Monday to Friday mornings at 10.45, then on the Radio 4 website for 30 days. If you like the sitcom Cabin Pressure, but wish there were fewer aeroplanes in it and more sketches, then this show from the writer John Finnemore might just be for you. This is John Finnemore's Souvenir Programme! Hi, Ellie. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Oh, that's good. At the finger, Daniel. Look at the finger. Oh, <laughs> right. Congratulations. Oh, I know. Isn't it wonderful? And you must come to the wedding. Oh, yes, of course. I'd love to. Though, of course, it's not going to be a wedding wedding. Not really our style. No, it's a camping and hiking long weekend. In the Brecon Beacons. And then, on the Sunday, we'll have a hand-fasting ceremony on the summit of Penny Fan. Oh, lovely. I know, won't it be? Oh, an advance warning. Instead of readings, we're asking all the guests to bring a poem or a song that they've written about Casper and I to perform to the groom. Oh, no. What? I just realised... That weekend is my parents' Ruby wedding anniversary. Oh, we're taking them on the cruise. I'm, I'm so sorry. Which weekend? <laughs> hmm? I didn't say when the wedding was. Yeah, I think you did. Uh, May... No, we haven't set a date. OK. <laughs> Tell you what. Shall you and I just not speak to each other ever again? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Are you sure you're ready for this, yeah, sir? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're going to be pretty tough negotiators. <laughs> well, I'm pretty tough myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be really tough. Yeah, so am I. Okay, okay, they're here. Right, yes. Uh, so, uh, who's, who's that one? Uh, that's their foreign policy advisor. He's slightly to the right of Genghis Khan. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> and next to him? Uh, that's their chief of staff. She's far to the right of Genghis Khan. Right, no, no, I meant on the other side. That's Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, right, I, I knew that, of course, yeah. 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 Okay, okay, go, go. He's summoning you. Oh, he's not summoning me. It's just time for the negotiations. Go! Oh, right, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yes, Mr. Khan, uh, Genghis, and I uh, had a very productive opening meeting. 
Uh, I, uh, I have to say I liked him immediately. Uh, I, I think the, the feeling was mutual. I think uh, we both recognised in one another a sort of um, no-nonsense attitude to politics. Um, <laughs> I definitely recognise that in him. <laughs> uh, that's, and that is, that is what I like about him. Genghis, uh, Genghis is not one of those politicians who just tells you what you want to hear. Um, he didn't do that at all. <laughs> Not once. Now, let's make no bones about it. We don't see completely eye to eye on everything. I think he'd be the first to admit that he, he was. He was the first to, to, to admit that. Um, but we've, we've set out our positions. We know where we stand. He's been very frank with me uh, that what he wants is to sweep through our land, looting everything of value, burning the rest of the ground, and putting us all to the sword. And I've been equally clear that uh, I, I, I don't want any of that. Uh, I'm not happy with, with any of those ideas. Um, but, but I am prepared to grant a passage through our land, and I've suggested he pay a small toll. Um, I suggested perhaps 500 talir. Uh, he counter-offered... He went back to the looting, burning, sword-putting thing. Um, what I'm trying to get across is these are our opening position. So, uh, yes, very good start. Uh, I know we're both looking forward uh, to going back into the chamber and hammering out a settlement this afternoon. <clears throat> he certainly is. He's, um, he's actually brought a hammer. <laughs> so that's exciting. Uh, no questions? No, thank you. No questions. Uh, hi. 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 I, I just thought I should... Um, I should mingle a little. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's supposed to be an interfaith conference, after all. So, yes, uh, yes, quite. And here we all are in our own groups. Yeah, Terrible. Yes. <laughs> um, so, well, hello. Um, I'm uh, Ra. Ra? <laughs> uh, that's it, yes. What a super name. Is that, uh, <laughs> is that short for something? Uh, no, no, just, just Ra. That's the, uh, that's the whole name. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice to meet you. I'm Helios. <laughs> Helios. Ooh, am I pronouncing that right? Yes, that's it. And you're the god of what? Uh, the sun. Uh, that's me. I, I look after the sun. I see. Uh, for uh, which humans? Well, I'm in the Egyptian pantheon, but of course <laughs> it's the sun, so, uh, you know, really all of them. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, I should say, uh, I am the god of the sun. <laughs> ah, right. Uh, who for? Well, I work out of Greece, but as you say, there's only one sun, so... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well. yeah, well, this is embarrassing. <laughs> it is rather, isn't it? But yeah. no, I'm, I'm not angry. Of course you're not angry. Well, as you pointed out, it's a little bit cheeky. To... I'm not angry. What? At you for pretending to be the god of the sun. Oh, come on, there's no point trying to bluff me. I don't believe it. Are you seriously going to try to brazen it out? I don't need to bring anything out. I am the god of the sun. No, I'm the god of the sun. Uh, hey, guys, guys, let's keep it non-confrontational. What's the problem? Him. He's pretending to be god of the sun. Oh, now, that's not really on. I am it's... the god of the sun. Uh, well, you're not, though, are you? There's only one god of the sun. Thank you. And that's me. Oh, what? <laughs> Hi, I'm Sol from the Norse lot and the actual god of the sun. Oh, for my sake. <laughs> Maybe we're just disagreeing about terms here. Look, when I say I'm the god of the sun, I mean I'm the one who actually makes it rise. Well, you're not, because I make it rise. Me too. I, I mean, me only. OK, fine. Well, show me. Make I, it rise. I will. All right. Go on. At 6.04, tomorrow morning precisely. Oh, the very time I've already arranged to make it rise. How very convenient. Oh, and, and how, do you, how do you make it rise, may I ask? Well, how do you think? 
I climb into my fiery chariot, pulled by my two eternal horses, and ride in triumph across the sky. Ah, right, uh, you see, that proves it. You know nothing about how the sun works. You didn't even mention the giant dung beetle. <laughs> What giant dung beetle? The giant dung beetle which every morning at my command rolls the sun across the heavens. What? That's the stupidest story I've ever oh, heard. Yeah, where, where does this dung beetle stand, exactly? The same place your horses stand. Uh, uh, guys, can you keep it down a bit? Yes, sorry. What are you arguing about, anyway? Who makes the sunrise? Oh, right, well, as it happens... Yeah, yeah, let me guess. You do that too, do you, Yahweh? Just like you do everything else. <laughs> yourself. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and please don't use my name. <laughs> Why not? It's kind of sacred. Just God. It's fine. Right. We're all God, Yahweh. Well, actually, all right, never mind. Just all right, keep, keep, keep it down. <laughs> Poor guy. He's got a real complex. <laughs> on Poetry Please, we're often asked for exactly the same poems again and again and again and again and again and again. And to tell you the truth, we're bloody sick of it. So, what we thought was, if we could do as many of the usual suspects as possible at once, maybe you'd back off and let us do some of the ones we like. So, here now are all your favourite poems, read for us now by Samuel Actor and Dame Harriet Voice. <laughs> Much have I travelled in the realms of gold. My love is like a red, red rose. My heart leaps up when I behold the dong with the luminous nose. <laughs> they also serve who only stand and wait. So was it when my life began. I am the master of my fate. I am Popeye, the sailor man. <laughs> I wandered lonely as a cloud that drops upon the place beneath. My head is bloody but unbowed. I wish I'd looked after my teeth. <laughs> my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. So in mine earthly house I am. I know why the caged bird sings. I do not like green eggs and ham. Uh, right. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, well, Genghis and I have had some very forthright discussions uh, this afternoon. Very candid and frank. Very candid. And um, look, the thing is, Genghis is not an unreasonable man. He's actually a god, um, which I didn't know. He's, um, he's, he's an unreasonable god. Uh, and yes, there are, there are particular challenges when you're negotiating with a living God. Um, but I'm, I'm confident, I'm broadly very confident. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't think we're going to get the toll. <laughs> I, I just, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen that idea get really any traction at all. Um, but that's fine, that's fine. It's a negotiation process. It's going to be give and take. Uh, it's, it's inevitable. Now, what I get in return for giving up the toll is uh, still to be decided, um, but uh, I, I, what I'm very much hoping is to uh, take the putting to sword at least uh, out of play. I mean, naturally, I don't want looting or burning either, uh, but at the end of the day, this is realpolitik, I can foresee a scenario <laughs> in which we may have to concede some limited, localised, 
Looting and burning. But, but <laughs> putting to the sword, I'm absolutely going to dig my heels in on that one, and I, I, I'm looking forward to giving you uh, good news about that this, this evening. Thank you. No questions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Good film. Yeah. Uh, pretty good. Got better as it went on. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Gary? Hmm? Film. What do you think? What did I think? Yeah. Oh. Well, when it started, I was still thinking about the advert with the crocodiles and wondering if they were real crocodiles or CGI crocodiles. And, <laughs> and I thought even CGI crocodiles must be based on real crocodiles to start with, or maybe that's not how that works. And then the opening credits were on, and I wondered why the casting director always gets such a big credit right at the start, like, oh, wow, it's the casting director. And, and why do they get letters after their name? And then I wondered if I knew anyone with letters after their name. And, and eventually I remembered my ex from uni, who I think is a solicitor now, so she must have. And then I tried to remember what she looked like, and then I thought about sex. <laughs> And then the movie had started, and I tried to work out who the guy who wasn't Bill Murray was, and after a while I thought maybe it was the brother out of Malcolm in the Middle, but looking much older now, even though it doesn't feel like an old show, and then I thought about death. <laughs> and then I wondered if the mum in Malcolm in the Middle is jealous of how successful the dad in it has got. <laughs> and then I remembered I used to fancy the mum in it, and then I thought about sex. <laughs> And then I remembered I told myself in the adverts that I couldn't have another minstrel until the movie started. But now it had started, so I had a minstrel. <laughs> and I thought about when I could have my next one, and eventually I decided not until Amy Adams comes on. And then the minstrel touched the saw bit on the roof of my mouth, and I thought about what if it was mouth cancer. I mean, it's definitely just a toast cup, but what if it was mouth cancer? And then I thought about death. And then Amy Adams came on in a dressing gown, and I thought about sex. And then I remembered she meant I was allowed another minstrel and <laughs> touched the sore place in my mouth again and I thought about death. And then... Gary, Gary. Yeah? Yeah. Um, not what did you think in the film, what did you think of the film? Oh! Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> Doctor, how is he? Any news? Well, the important thing is he's going to be fine. Oh, thank God. But you must prepare yourself. The... The head trauma he sustained has had certain effects on his personality. I know. Yeah. Um, you see, he's damaged the centres of the brain responsible for making comparisons and judgments. And uh, one effect of this, for instance, is I'm afraid he's incapable now of finding anything funny. Really? Yes, I'm afraid so. It's um, completely removed his sense of humour. But, on the other hand, it does mean that he is entirely at peace with his situation. Without judgment, he simply can't comprehend that there's anything he should feel dissatisfied about. So, you're telling me... Yes, that's right, madam. He's serious, but not critical. <laughs> As you can see, the scroll work on the back is quite exquisite. It's really no exaggeration to say it's one of the finest chairs in the Heppelwhite style ever to have passed through our hands. Style? As I said? In the Heppelwhite style. Didn't he make it? Well, as you know, sir, no furniture directly ascribable to George Heppelwhite himself is known to exist. Not interested, then. I told you I don't want any repro stuff. So this is not repro stuff. This is a, an original 18th century piece made for... Not interested! I see. 
Well, sir, I happen to know we do have coming up a marquetry armoire, which is reliably attributed to Thomas Chippendale himself. Now, it's not up for auction. Yeah, I've got him already. And so, sir? A Chippendale. I've already got uh, one of his things, maybe a couple, I think. <laughs> I see. Of course, there are only about 36 pieces of his known to be extant. Yeah, and I've got a couple. I am very rich. <laughs> I see. Sir, I wonder if you would care to step through here into my office. Not really. I do think you'd find it worth your while, sir. I have a very, very special piece there. All right. Better be good, though. Oh, it is, sir. Here we are. It's this chair here. Well, it doesn't look like much to me. Perhaps not. But you see, sir, this chair is an original Jesus. Jesus? Jesus who? Christ, sir. The Messiah, made by him personally during his carpentry period. Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, how can you tell? Well, you see here how the moulding of the arms has been done with ineffable perfection. That's classic Jesus. And how has it survived? Well, sir, when the Lamb of God makes a chair, it is, of course, the perfect expression of all that a chair could be, including durable. Oh, uh, and also, it swivels. It swivels. Look. Surely they didn't have that kind of technology then. Well, they didn't know, sir. But all things are known to the Son of Man. <laughs> including how to make a chair swivel. That's also why the arms are made of polyvinyl chloride. And you're absolutely certain this is a genuine Jesus chair? Absolutely, sir. The real giveaway is here. If you look on the back, you can see where he tipexed his initials. <laughs> oh, yes. Hmm? I do also have a couple of pieces by his father, if you're interested. What? God? No, sir, Joseph. The, the carpenter, rather than the deity. All right, no, 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 I, I want the Jesus one. I thought you would, sir. Put it on my account and name your price. But I warn you, I'm going to tell everyone where I got it. Sir, you are quite welcome to tell whoever you like where you bought a swivel chair made by Jesus. <laughs> Hello, requisitions. Uh, Julian Crosby here. Could you send me up a new chair? <laughs> yeah. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. There's no point. Um, let's be blunt about this. Uh, we didn't get everything we wanted. Uh, but we were never going to. Um, this was always going to be a negotiation. And in negotiation, you must expect to make compromises. And yes, even sacrifices. So, um, for example, the toll idea, that, that's, that's not going to happen now. We, we've scratched that. Um, but to be honest, I can tell you now, that was actually a ploy. I never actually thought we'd get that. That was just to give me something to be able to deliberately give up. And, and that part of the plan has worked precisely as I expected. Um, so that's good. Now, from um, Genghis's side, the looting, that is going to happen. Uh, and the burning, there will be burning in a more or less 
let's not beat around the bush, a pretty much total way. Um, <laughs> but now, this is where we have brought something back from the negotiating chamber. I can tell you now, as an absolutely direct consequence of our talks, fleeing is now very much on the table. <laughs> I know, I know it doesn't sound like much, but you have to remember that what it replaces, or, or what we're hoping it will largely replace, is putting to the sword. And <laughs> let me tell you, that was something that Genghis did not want to concede on. He was, uh, he was very keen on that. He pushed very hard. Uh, but I pushed hard back. I said, I'm sorry, Genghis, this is our line in the sand. We can give you looting, we can give you burning, but we, 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 we just don't want to be put to the sword. And if you try, quite frankly, we will flee. And... That is what we've agreed on. Uh, he is going to try, but we now absolutely have the fleeing option that I argued into the contract. And, and I, for one, am going to take that option. Uh, I'm going to take it right now. Uh, I very strongly suggest that you do so too. Perhaps actually right now. I mean, flee. No questions. Flee! Flee for your life! Flee! Well, since you ask me for a story about me being told a story by somebody else, I believe I have such a story to tell. It all began one January night at my club. It was a bitterly cold evening, and I spread my greatcoat over my super trousers. <laughs> Suddenly, a stranger burst into the room. He was a big, burly, grizzled man wearing fur gloves and a greatcoat, but not as great as mine. But as one looked into his eyes, one could see at once that he was a man burdened with a story he had to tell. I gathered my things and made for the exit. <laughs> I am a man more prepared to tell long, stupid stories full of puns than to listen to them. But I was too slow. A massive hand descended on my shoulder, and he forced me down into my chair. I have a tale to tell, said he. And tell it I must. So sit ye down and prepare ye to hear. So I did, and I did. My name is not important. Well, hey, hang on. Uh, uh, what? Were you telling it now? Yes, of course. But I mean, I'm, I'm still here, I can tell it. I bet, no, 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 you see, um, you told me the story, and I'm telling them the story of you telling me the story. No, that makes no sense. If you're going to give me a voice at all, you might as well let me tell the story. Yes, but, but then what would I do? Well, I imagine you would sit and listen. No, I don't want to do that. Oh, right. You can do his dialogue. Oh, thanks. It's my show. Yeah, for now. What? Nothing. Okay. Going to be some changes round here soon. Did you say something? No. Good, good. <clears throat> My name is not important, the stranger began. <laughs> but I come from a good family. There were seven of us in total. Myself, three others, a fifth, and the remaining two. <laughs> as soon as I reached man's estate, father fitted me out in two sets of clothes. I don't know why, I think to make me look bigger. <laughs> and sent me out to seek my fortune in the world. I set sail for Canada, for it was my great ambition to shoot a bear. I have nothing against bears socially or as a class, but it was my fixed idea that if I could only shoot one, I could finally command the true respect of my father, a large man who had a big brown beard, always wore a fur coat, and loved honey. <laughs> Whatever the motivation, I arrived in Canada, full of a thrill of a chase. 
but bears are not as common in the streets of Toronto as you would suppose. <laughs> Before long, I was penniless and desperate, forced to sell the shirt off my back, though luckily not the other shirt off my back. <laughs> it was in this condition that I was found by a kindly old rancher on his annual trip into the city to stock up on false teeth and salad cream. Well, my boy, said he, and are you ready to work for a living? I responded eagerly. Eagerly. Oh, uh, this is me, is it? Oh, joy. Uh, uh, yes, sir. I said quickly. I will gladly work for food. I'll do anything short of murder or data entry. Well, I suppose you could be a hand on my ranch. Hand on your what? On my ranch. The biggest ranch this side of Saskatoon. And indeed, the other side of Saskatoon. So the biggest ranch anywhere, then? No, there is a bigger one. Where? Saskatoon. (laughs) Right, well, I'll gladly join you, but I must warn you, I know nothing of cattle. So much the better for this here is a tortoise ranch. (laughs) A, A tortoise ranch? You betcha. Why, have you never heard of tortoise shell spectacles? <laughs> Those fancy dance in New York will pay any price for them. Come and ranch tortoises with me, my boy. I'll give you free lodgings and all the tortoises you can eat. Which it later transpired was none. <laughs> well, I settled down to the work and was trained by the rancher in the subtle art of tortoise wrangling. They are gentle creatures, and I grew in a way to love them as I rode around the trackless wastes, herding them on my giant sloth. (laughs) But then came the night of my undoing. It was a moonless night, or so I thought. The rancher later explained that the moon was still there. It was simply hidden behind clouds. (laughs) It was my night to watch over the ranch, and I was gazing fondly over my slumbering shelly charges, when what should I see but a bear... A brown bear of middling size, looking across at me as if to say, while you're under my roof, you'll do things my way. (laughs) What was I to do? Ahab had his great white whale. Prince had his little red corvette. (laughs) This was my medium-sized brown bear. I couldn't resist it. I snatched up my musket and loosed off a volley of shots, if that's what you do from a musket. (laughs) They went far, far wide. Six or seven feet above the bear's head. The bear looked at me, sneered, made a gesture I didn't know bears knew, (laughs) and ambled back into the forest. At that moment, the door of the ranch flung open, and the rancher staggered towards me, his face ashen. Look what you've done, boy! He pointed with a quivering hand at one wall of the tortoise pan. I followed his gaze and saw a little strip, a few inches wide, of bare earth, free from tortoises. You see? He cried. They're stampeding. (laughs) It was true. The two most feared words in the whole of Canada. Tortoise stampede. What what can we do? I stammered. Run! Run for our lives and quickly! We haven't a fortnight to lose! And so we took to our heels, but it was all in vain. After five or six months, we could hear them gaining slowly and steadily upon us. If I had my time all over again, of course I would have turned to the left or the right, but it all happened so fast. And the next thing I knew was the first touch of a scaly foot on my heel. 
I don't know, sir, said my new friend in the club, whether you have ever been slowly trampled to death over a week or more by a herd of tortoises. It is no way for a gentleman to die. But die, I did. And that's why I'm dead. Uh, hang on, I said, you, you don't seem terribly dead. Ah. He replied. I suppose that's true. Well, perhaps it was a story that happened to a friend of mine. No, said I, that makes no sense either. There were no survivors who would tell the story. Yes. Said he. True enough. You've got me there. No survivors indeed. No witnesses to my tale. Well, ha, you win, sir. You've found me out. You take no offence at me having a little fun with you, I hope. Good night. And so saying, he clambered to his feet, saluted me with a touch of his fairy glove to his grizzled face, and pausing only to stop by the buffet trolley and swallow an entire salmon, shambled into the night. Good night. John Finnemore's souvenir programme was written and performed by John Finnemore, with Margaret Cable Smith, Simon Kane, Laurie Lewin, and Carrie Quinlan. The producer was Ed Morrish. Additional voices provided by members of the cast, the same four voices he always does, provided by John Finnemore. And last week's edition is now available to download for free from the BBC Radio 4 website. The actor and film producer Elijah Wood talks about his new film, Set Fire to the Stars. That's on Front Row at 7.15. On BBC Radio 4 Extra, Tony Hancock is on the loose. Here's Count Basie, one of my great favourites, saying, Come fly with me. In rare recordings to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Hancock's Half Hour with a very well-qualified curator. Welcome to Celebrity Mastermind. And your name is? Steve Punt. And your specialist subject? The life and career of Tony Hancock. Tony Hancock in 90 seconds. In which city? Steve, you've got them all right, 11 points. Steve Punt's Hancock Cuttings over on BBC Radio 4 Extra on Saturday morning at 9 and again in the evening at 7.00.